Well, we want to turn our attention back to the letter of Titus this morning, get back into our study of this letter. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this second main section, the beginning part of the second main section in Titus, beginning in verse 10, and we want to continue that. And it's a part of Paul's instruction here to Titus related to this clear and present danger that the Apostle Paul had observed there in the, in the context of the Cretan t- churches, that clear and present danger of false teaching. And it's interesting to note that false teaching, it really has always been at the threshold of the church. It's always been a problem. We read that in the New Testament from the earliest formation of the churches uh, to even today. We know that false teaching is always something that we must uh, give uh, uh, attention to and be alert for. And Paul's letter to Titus certainly provides us with the instruction that we need to think appropriately about this clear and present danger. Now, to review what we've covered so far in this letter, we remember that the Apostle Paul had left his disciple, his son in the faith, Titus, on the island of Crete in order to set in order what still remained. Paul had to depart from the island. We don't know exactly why. But he had to depart without spending a lengthy period of time there. And so he leaves Titus, who was with him in the establishment of these churches, he leaves Titus there to set in order what remained to be done to establish these churches as strong in the faith. Now, a large part of that setting in order was the establishment of leadership. Each of the churches scattered across that island of Crete needed needed leadership in place, a plurality of elders uh, who would serve the church and would promote the church's health through the ministry of the word and the modeling of gospel living. The right men, as Paul writes in verses 5 to 9, the right men were needed, men who would be above reproach in their character and in their skill, ready for the task at hand And such leaders were particularly needed, as we see in this letter, because of the rise of challengers to the truth. And we saw that uh, the last time we were in Titus, when we looked at the, the first section of this next paragraph, verses 10 and 11, after he goes through the qualifications of an elder, he then immediately launches into the threat That existed there. We looked at this already. This is by way of review. Let me read verse 9, however, before looking at verses 10 and 11. For one of the qualifications for the one who would step into the office of overseer, such a man had to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that is, the apostolic standard, the content of teaching that the Apostle Paul had together with Titus, established there, so that this candidate, this elder, would be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, in the original, the very last word of that sentence, the last word of that paragraph, is the word refute. And then, immediately after that, Paul explains why. 
This was the clear and present danger, the threat of the false teachers. Verses 10 and 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And if you remember from last time, we looked at the four characteristics there that the Apostle Paul gives concerning these false teachers, their identity. And then he goes on to describe their activity then in verse 11. He continues and says, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Now this morning we're going to look at the rest of this paragraph, verses 12 to 16. And so have that open before you and we're going to draw as much as we can in the time that we have from this text as it relates to the clear and present danger of false teaching. Paul writes this now beginning in verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. As we start, I wanted to ask, do we have any Cretans in our group today? Because this is kind of a, a challenging text. If you have any kind of Cretan uh, bloodline, anybody do that, that what is it, 23andMe or whatever that uh, DNA test, and you go and look, and maybe there's something in there about being Cretan. Well, this is the inspired Word of God, but it certainly is uh, quite uh, convicting for anyone of Cretan background. But as we're going to see this morning, this isn't just a condemnation of Cretans. This is a condemnation of human nature in general. Now, as we look at this text, we need to see this. In verses 12 to 16, Paul continues to instruct Titus regarding this clear and present danger that was facing the Cretan churches. And this is the outline that we're going to follow as we go through these verses. Our second main point from this paragraph is going to be this. We're going to see in verses 12 and the first part of verse 13, the origin of the false teachers. Here in in this section, in, in these brief lines, we see Paul explain why this is such a threat. Where does false teaching come from? And often we might be tempted to say, well, false teaching comes from the pit of hell. Well, certainly, by, or in terms of ultimate origination, you could say that, but really we need not look farther than our own culture to see, and, and our own humanity, our own human nature, to see the origin of false teaching. Second, or thirdly, our third main point here is this, the response to false teachers. In verses 13 to 14, the, the second part of 13 and into 14, we're going to see that This is not some issue that we can treat neutrally or ambivalently. There is a prescribed response to any kind of deviation from the gospel, and we ought to take this very, very seriously. 
In fact, we could say this, that as you look at the history of the church in the West, you, you see the, the testimony of, of what happens when false teaching is treated with ambivalence or superficially. Instead, what we're going to see here is that Paul has a prescribed response that we are to have when there is any deviation from the gospel, anything added to the gospel in particular. And then fourthly, our fourth main point for this whole paragraph is going to be found in the final two verses, the condemnation of the false teachers. Paul is going to have some very strong words related to those who manipulate the gospel. So let's look now at the origin of the false teachers in verses 12 to 13. Paul writes this, and it's a very interesting statement. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, this text has become the focus of a lot of discussion. Why does the Apostle Paul quote some other prophet? Well, it's important to notice here that Paul isn't canonizing some pagan prophet. And we'll talk about the identity of this, in, this prophet in just a moment. What he's doing is simply using a very clever rhetorical approach. He's using the words of the Cretans against themselves. He's going to quote, as we see here, one of themselves, one of the Cretans. He is going to quote verbatim a statement made by a poet of Cretan descent, who is well known in Crete, and these words, in fact, would have been well known to the residents of this island, even at the time when Paul writes. Now, Paul calls this Cretan, one of themselves, a prophet of their own. Now, we're not entirely sure who this particular prophet is. We have a very good idea, but we, we can't say, and with all certainty, and certainly Paul doesn't feel compelled to name the prophet, but we do have some archaeological evidence that would suggest a certain man by the name of Epimenides. Now, Paul uses the term prophet to describe him, again, not because Paul recognizes this Greek poet as, as a prophet in the biblical sense. Rather, again, he is simply using the terminology the wording that was prevalent in the society at large. As I said, this prophet is most likely Epimenides, a 6th century BC poet who was from the Cretan city of Gnosis, who was considered one of the seven wise poets of ancient Greece. So this was a pretty formidable poet, and again, like I said, we don't know for sure. I'll, I'll quote a, a section that is attributed to Ep Epimenides, but we're not quite sure. Early church interpreters such as Jerome and Chrysostom believed it to be Epimenides, but we're not quite sure. There are some other early church interpreters who say it was someone else, but really that's not significant to our discussion here. But what is said about Epimenides was that he served this poet as a priest for the cult of Zeus. So in, in one of the temples dedicated to Zeus on the island of Crete, this poet played a pretty significant part. 
It is claimed that Epimenides uh, would receive revelation from Zeus in his sleep. And these poets in those days, because of, of their writings, were often claimed or acclaimed to be prophets, to be spokesmen from the gods. Now, Paul quotes, what we do know is he quotes from a hymn to Zeus, sometimes, as I said, attributed to this poet Epimenides. And it goes something like this. They fashioned a tomb for thee, speaking of Zeus, O high and holy one. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But thou art not dead, thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. A very interesting stanza. And Paul quotes specifically from this line, the Cretans always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. It's also interesting to note that sometime earlier in the timeline of Paul's ministry, Paul quoted from this same stanza when he was in Athens, when he gave his delivery to the Athenian uh, Areopagus, the, 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 the city council of the city of Athens, Paul quotes from that second, or excuse me, the fourth line when he stated, quoting from the prophet so-called in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now, once again, I want to make this clear. When Paul quotes from Epimenides, he also quotes from Eratus, another Greek uh, poet. He also quotes uh, from Menander in 1 Corinthians. He, there's these very rare occasions where Paul reaches into secular society, or you could even say into paganism, and he draws in some kind of well-known statement. Now, it's important to notice this. Paul isn't suggesting that these poets, these so-called prophets, were revealers of divine truth. That's not what Paul is doing here. Rather, as I said, this is a clever rhetorical device. Paul is using the words of the Cretans for his case to argue against the Cretans themselves. He does that also in, in Athens when he quotes twice from two different poets. He quotes from these Greek philosophers, these Greek poets, not to suggest that they had insight into God, but rather that they could say true things, but had no way of accounting for that truth. And Paul says, but I do. I can account uh, for this truth. In explaining Paul's rhetorical usage here, the fourth century preacher Chrysostom said it this way. He says, it is because we put them most to confusion when we bring our testimonies and accusations from their own writers when we make those their accusers who are admired among themselves. Do these prophets then speak the truth? No, but he refutes and confounds them out of their own mouths. That is, Paul refutes and confounds them out of their own mouths. That's what Paul is doing here. 
Now, when we come back to Paul's statement, a few things, a few more observations we can then make from this citation. Paul calls them, citing Epimenides, liars. Calls them liars. Now, what's interesting is that the ancient Greeks even coined a synonymous term to the term liar, and it was this, to speak as a Cretan. The Cretans were so well known as deceivers that they coined a verb to, 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 to communicate that using the Cretans themselves, to speak as a Cretan, to, to lie, essentially. Just as in Corinth, uh, they coined the term to Corinthianize, using the Corinthians' illicit, immoral, debauched, uh, immorality uh, to, to describe a certain kind of lifestyle to Corinthians, Corinthianize. Well, here, to the Cretans, they said, if you're going to speak a lie, you're speaking like a Cretan. And going back for just a moment, why does Epimenides say that all Cretans are liars? This is just a kind of an interesting aside. Why does he say that in his poem? If we go back to that poem, you see there that uh, the Cretans had built a tomb for Zeus. Now, that suggested that Zeus had died. The Cretans had their own version of the life of Zeus, suggesting that he was a man and somehow through death attained some hero divine status. And that, of course, was an abomination to many. Zeus had never died. And so based on the fact that the Cretans had a tomb for Zeus, Epimenides calls them liars. But Paul isn't interested in that. He's simply interested in the fact that, yes, it is the commonly known quality of these Cretans that they are liars. They are deceitful. Secondly, they're called evil beasts. What does that mean? Evil beasts as the idea of being senseless, barbarous, wild, and as well, the, the, the Cretans were well known in the world at that time as, as being warmongers. They were the pirates of the sea, and they were very sexually deviant. They were debauched. In fact, as, as one scholar has written, Crete, interestingly enough, the island of Crete had no wild beasts of significance. And so the saying went, Crete had no need of wild beasts, for its own inhabitants were sufficient. Those are the Cretans. Thirdly, they are called lazy gluttons. In other words, they were governed by their bellies. Figurative language for being described as those who are ruled purely by their appetites. They are good for nothing except for pursuing pleasure. They bring no benefit to anyone else. These were the Cretans, according to Epimenides, and Paul is lending his affirmation of this. It's interesting to note, one a Greek historian by the name of Polybius, who lived a little bit before Paul, wrote this about the Cretan population. Money is so highly valued among them, that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but in the highest degree creditable. 
And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil of Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches any sort of gain to, to any sort of gain whatever. The Cretans, by their ingrained avarice, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murders, and civil wars. That's quite the testimony borne by Greek historians and poets. And Paul says this at the beginning of verse 13, and this testimony is true. What Paul does here is not canonize the poet, but he does a fact check on this line of testimony, and he finds it true. It is consistent with reality as God would define it. And, and Paul introduces this statement because the teachers Paul is criticizing in this text were of this very ilk. They were deceitful. They were known for deceiving, for speaking lies in their opposition to the truth. They were known as debauched in that they could not come up with a way of, of dealing with their own sin, and they were decadent. The kind of godliness, as we're going to see, that these false teachers proposed was a kind of godliness that was superficial. They proclaimed it, but it had no power to deal with the problem of sin. These false teachers, what we see, these false teachers threatening the Cretan church had not been spiritually regenerated. And as a result... Lacking that transformation, they brought into the church their culture. The worst parts of their culture were brought into the church by these false teachers because of their lack of regeneration. So Paul raises this testimony. It's important, he says to Titus, to remember this because it is this kind of testimony that begs a certain kind of response. So we saw the origin of these false teachers, the culture. Now let's see the response to this false teaching in the next part of verse 13 and into verse 14. Paul begins in verse 13 saying this, For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith. Now notice he begins this sentence with a, a, a basis, a substantiation for what he's going to say. On the basis of this true testimony, a, a, an appropriate response is needed. He's going to connect what he will now prescribe with what he has just established. And what is key here is this verb to reprove. Paul says reprove them. He commands it. And this verb, reprove, is, is very strong. It, it has the idea of, of identifying error, of discerning it, of correcting that error. In other words, setting it against the truth and showing how the truth is different. And then in disciplining or rebuking the one who is promoting it. It is a very intense word. And what's important to note is this. We've already seen this word for rebuke. We saw it at the very end of verse 9. Remember that final qualification that the Apostle Paul prescribes 
to Titus in his search for elders, in that that qualification that takes up all of verse 9, the qualification that receives the most lengthiest treatment from Paul here in the letter to Titus deals with this issue. Remember, Paul had said in verse 9 that these candidates for eldership needed to hold fast the faithful word so that that elder would be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. It's the same verb that's used. Remember I said in verse 9 in the original, that word for refute comes at the very, very end. And now Paul brings it back into his language here in verse 13, saying, for this reason, reprove them. This is why the elders were so needed in those churches as they are needed today. There was this need for rebuking, for reproving, for refuting. There was this clear and present and perpetual danger. In fact, we saw this even in our last study when we got into verses 10 and 11. Notice in verse 11 of these teachers, Paul has already said that they must be silenced. A different verb used there, talking about muting, gagging. But notice the intensity, the seriousness that Paul brings into this discussion. They needed to be muted. They needed to be gagged. They were of such a danger to this church. Now, this is consistent even outside of Titus. Paul regularly emphasizes, particularly in his pastoral letters, that false teaching, deviation from the truth, a departure to the right or to the left of the revealed Word of God is never something to take lightly. And we talked about that already last time, that this text, this paragraph teaches us that we must be, all of us as believers, very, very sensitive to any assertions, any propositions, any Uh, insinuations that would lead us away from the clear established revelation of God. And Paul is consistent with this. We can see later on in Titus chapter 2 verse 15, Paul says to to, uh, Titus, these things, what he is even writing in this letter, these things, Titus, speak, exhort, and Reprove, there's the same word again. With all authority, let no one disregard you. In his letter to Timothy, regarding the Ephesian church, in 1 Timothy chapter 5.20, Paul says, those who continue in sin, here is a moral departure, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Then in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, we see this verb to refute, to reprove. Again, we see this in chapter 4 verse 2 of 2 Timothy, where Paul prescribes these words. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, and then here's the verb once again, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now coming back to Titus then, verse 13, 
it's as if Paul couldn't underscore this enough. Notice the, the term that follows our key verb here. He says, for this reason, reprove them, those false teachers, severely. Paul now describes the manner in which the rebuke was to be administered. It was to be done so rigorously. Now, if we look at this and, and, and we still walk away thinking that this is no big deal, we have totally missed the point. Paul has left us with word after word. He's left us with this context that shows that deviations from the word of God are, are no small thing. There's a purpose to all of this, of course, and it's introduced by this, this little phrase, so that, and what is the purpose? Purpose is as follows, so that they may be sound in the faith. Now, we have to look at that pronoun they for just a moment. At first reading, it may appear that Paul here has the interests of the false teachers in view. But actually, in light of the context, the pronoun they is not here referring to the false teachers. Paul is going to go on, especially in verse 16, to utterly condemn them. They have departed from the truth. It's important to recognize in the whole context here that the they does not refer to the false teachers here, but it refers to the church. Paul now is is prescribing this, this strict, severe response to false teaching for the reason of the protection of the true believers. The they refers to the Cretan believers. And he wants them, those Cretan believers, opposed by the the false teachers, he wants the Cretan believers literally to be healthy. That's the, the literal understanding of that word for to be sound, to be healthy. But of course, Paul's using it not in the physical sense. He's using it here in the, the figurative sense, to be healthy spiritually. Or you could put it this way, to be free from error. And Paul has has, he, he has used this concept already, this picture of the Christian life several times uh, in this letter. He's used it already in verse 9. He's going to use it again in, in, in chapter 2. Notice back in verse 9, we have the same idea. Notice what he says there when he says that you must, they must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that they will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. Literally, healthy doctrine. The idea is that this doctrine is what promotes spiritual health, spiritual well-being. And so coming back here, we see the same idea, that these false teachers were to be silenced, and that was necessary so that the congregation would be healthy. We're going to see this also in chapter 2 as we get into the first verses there. Notice what Paul says there. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, doctrine that cultivates, invigorates spiritual health. goes on to say this, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound, or healthy 
in the faith. That's why the church exists, to promote spiritual health. That's why the elders exist, to promote spiritual health. That's, why old, that's what older men are to, to, to do in the church. They are to have this influence of promoting soundness or health in the faith. And we find that even in our own text here in verse 13. They are to be sound or healthy in the faith. Now, as we draw this to, to, to some conclusions already, it's important to recognize, again, the strong nature of Paul's language. And I like what one commentator, A.T. Robertson, said in response to some of the discomfort that people have as they read Paul's very severe, strict words. And it's this. He says, quote, It is necessary to appear rude sometimes for safety if the house is on fire and life is in danger. It's a good reminder. And often because we are so material-oriented, we would certainly recognize the need to do this if our neighbor's house was on fire. We would, if we could, go in if they did not believe us and grab them by the back of their neck and pull them kicking and screaming out of the house if it was on fire. And yet, for some reason, when we think of spiritual realities, we don't have the same kind of concern. We'll know of friends and family that are dabbling with really bad teaching and will have this idea, well, it'll just work out over time. Now, again, I'm not prescribing that you grab them by the back of their necks and physically drag them out of that church or physically smash their TV if they're watching the, uh, maybe you could do that, but if they're watching the, the bad teachers, but there must be this, this, this reality of elevated concern. We must realize that, that souls are certainly at stake. Now, Paul explains how those Cretan believers would be made healthy through the stern rebuke and refutation of these false teachers. This is continued in verse 14. You should read verse 14 there. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Now some, some interesting observations to make from this as Paul continues to give us this insight into the necessary response to these false teachers. Here he explains how believers would attain to a greater level of healthiness. And he explains why the refutation of these false teachers would lead to greater health. Why? Because it would help those Cretan believers not pay attention to these things, certain things. In other words, what needed to be done was a response to these false teachers in, in such a way that it would treat them as toxins, as that which was poisonous to the well-being of those believers in Crete. They were not to pay attention. They were not to remain close to, is the idea, two things in particular. First of all, Jewish myths. Jewish myths. I said in our last study that it appears that the kind of threat that was being made to the Cretan churches came from a very or a highly Jewish background. There's very, very widespread testimony that early on in the, the, 
the, the history of Crete, the Jews were present there. And certainly by the time of Paul, there was a very strong Jewish presence on the island. We see this referenced even in verse 10 of chapter 1. Paul has already said this, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Paul's making a reference to the, to the presence of Judaizers is what we call them. Now these Judaizers were not simply trying to promote Judaism, trying to build more synagogues. Their approach, these Judaizers, these rebellious men were seeking to make inroads into the church. And they were doing this, Paul says, by Jewish myths. It was well known by this time that uh, the uh, rabbinical schools were, were, were practicing a kind of, uh, of, of speculative exegesis, you could say, a speculative interpretation of Old Testament texts, focusing on very, very small minutia and then extrapolating from that into all kinds of areas of knowledge where when you just look at the text, it just would not be anywhere there. And that is a good definition of a myth, something that was not at all intended by the text, yet extrapolated through speculation. And the Jews were doing that and seeking to use that as a way to syncretize Paul's gospel with Mosaic law. Moreover, he calls this the commandments of men. This is another one of the toxins. He says, not remaining close to, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men. These were the traditions that the Judaizers had added to the Old Testament. You can see this in various uh, texts in, in Scripture. For example, Isaiah 29:13. So This is already present in the Old Testament that the Jewish people had added traditions to the revealed Word of God, seeking to protect the Word of God by adding things, that, that we're going to protect the Bible. We're going, to, we're going to make it clearer, and so they added their traditions. And so in Isaiah 29, 13, for example, we read these words. The Lord said, this, "'Because this people draw near me with their words,' And honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Already in Isaiah's time, there was this battle, and the traditionalists, those who were prescribing Bible plus adding to the Scriptures the traditions of men, and God condemns it. Then in Mark, for example, Mark chapter 7, verse 9 to 13, we read these words from Jesus Himself. He says, You are experts at setting aside, and He's speaking to the Pharisees, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Thus invalidating, verse 13, the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. That was what Jesus said to condemn the Pharisees. And that appears to be what Paul is bringing in here. 
the Judaizers who were at work in those churches were involved in the same kind of, of things, speculative approaches, focusing on minutia, extrapolating all kinds of supposed knowledge, then adding their own traditions and protections and, and ways of, of becoming right with God. But Paul says, in doing so, these Judaizers had turned away from the truth. By adding to, they turned away. By adding Mosaic law to the gospel, speculation, rabbinic tradition, Paul said these men have apostatized. They have left the truth. They don't have the truth, Paul said. It's not just that they are a little mistaken or have a little bit of chaff with the wheat. Paul says they have turned away from the truth. And that leads us to a very important conclusion to make from that. That, As I said, these Judaizers were not just trying to lure the Christians back to the synagogues to preach pure Judaism, although that would have been a problem in itself. Instead, what they were doing was trying to syncretize their version of Judaism with Paul's preaching of the gospel. And it leads us to this, that any addition to the gospel is automatically no gospel. You can't add something to the gospel without removing the essence of the gospel itself. The gospel is exclusive. It is by nature exclusionary. It does not allow accretions. And any effort made to, to, to add to it, any effort made to even add what is very religious and, and very pious sounding turns out to be apostasy from that gospel. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of this in a sermon called The Hearing of Faith, had some very strong words of his own. Specifically referring to the effort to add to the gospel various forms of traditions and the commandments of men, he said this, quote, It would appear that God does not know the best way of saving men, speaking facetiously, and men are so wise that they amend his methods. Is not this a refinement of blasphemy? It is a hideous farce to see a rebellious sinner suddenly become jealous about good works and greatly concerned for public morality. Does it not make laughter in hell to see licentious men censoring the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus and finding fault with free forgiveness because it might make men less mindful of purity? It makes one sick to see the hypocrisy of the legalists. And that's exactly what was happening here in the Cretan context. The Cretans were saying, these false teachers were saying, we have a better way. The gospel of grace which Paul preached was not enough. It needed addition. It needed supplementation. And Paul calls them out. We see that come specifically and most pointedly in the denunciation of the false teachers in the final two verses of this text. 
begins in verse 15 saying this. Very interesting statement. Perhaps it is even some kind of an axiom or an aphorism that was circulated at the time. We don't know, but it, it appears elsewhere in Paul's writings, Romans 14, 20, something similar to this. But, but it, he, he writes this, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. It's a very fascinating statement. It reveals to us that the focus of these false teachers was on some form of external ritual purity. You could say this, the, the, the focus of these false teachers was on external morality, external conformity to some kind of religious standard. In their case, they had their washings in particular, their ritualistic washings, probably also included the food laws, those ceremonies, so on and, and so forth. But Paul says this, he says, to the pure, all things are pure. Let's look at that, to the pure. Who is he referring to there? To the pure. That word pure is not referring to external uh, material uh, relations. That, that has to do with, with one's actual true state. Especially in the context of Titus, when Paul says to the pure, he is referring to those who have been spiritually cleansed through the washing of regeneration. And you might say, well, where do you find that in, in the context? Well, there's a very important text that helps us understand Paul's definition of purity. It's found in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Turn there, flip the page, turn there for a moment, and we're going to see here why he calls them pure. He says in verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to the various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing, by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, these false teachers had completely disregarded, they had rejected that reality and sought to make themselves pure according to their own righteous deeds. Paul says, absolutely not. Those who are pure are those who have been made pure by the sovereign work of God through His washing that takes place by regeneration. And to them, to the ones made pure on the inside, then automatically all things that God has made for their enjoyment, all things are pure. What God has made cannot defile. But Paul then turns to the other side of the equation and he emphasizes the fact that the defilement arises from within. Notice what he says. He says, to those who are defiled, those who have been corrupted by sin, those who are already dirty on the inside, then nothing on the outside is pure. It all begins in, in the heart. 
Jesus himself had emphasized that when he said in Matthew 15, verse 11, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. To those who are defiled, he even says this, toward those or to those who are unbelieving, and that reference there is a direct reference to the gospel, to those who have not believed the simplicity of the gospel of grace, which teaches that man is not saved by his deeds. He's not saved by his efforts to make himself worthy or clean before God, but is saved purely on the basis of God's grace by believing in the promise that it was Jesus who was the pure one, Jesus who died for our defilement. But these are called unbelieving. They have rejected that message. And as a result, Paul says, nothing is pure. And here's the reality, that when you remain in your defiled state, when the inside of you is still not right with God and and is still enslaved to that darkness of sin, nothing that you do on the outside, no amount of rituals, no amount of religious practices, no amount of deeds done for the sake of righteousness, none of that will be pure. There will be no ability you have in yourself to do anything, no matter how good it looks on the outside, in a way that is pure in God's eyes. Verse 16 then draws this section to a conclusion with some of the strongest denunciation yet. Verse 16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. They profess to know. They make a public declaration of close personal knowledge, and the object of their profession is that they know God. In fact, in the original, it's placed at the beginning of the sentence as if to say, God, they profess to know. That's what they say. Paul says, but by their very actions, these actions which they think are purifying, the actions which they think is what makes them acceptable to God, but they're doing it by their own strength, for their own glory's sake, by those very deeds, by those very deeds they deny Him. And that verb for deny means to disclaim association with the person. Finally, Paul ends with three terms of his own. Epimenides had said that these these Cretans, by the culture, they were liars, they were wild beasts and lazy gluttons. Paul ends with his own terminology here. He calls them, first of all, detestable. The idea is that which stirs up feelings of repugnance. You could translate it as an abomination. Their rejection of the gospel of grace and instead pursuing a a works-based righteousness to the Apostle Paul, he calls it an abomination. It's detestable. Secondly, he calls them disobedient. They, of course, elevated themselves by saying they found the path of obedience, but in God's eyes, in all reality, they were disobedient. Why? 
because they rejected the gospel of grace. Because they added to the gospel. They believed that their own traditions, their own, their own speculations, their own intuition was needed to, to supplement what came from God. They were disobedient. And finally, they're called worthless. Unable to produce works that are truly good. Unable to produce works that truly please God. In light of this, one commentator writes, Paul was not slow to sound the alarm. He was not slow to direct Titus and the church leaders under his care to engage with these people. While there are certainly numerous areas in belief and practice where modern Christians must allow differences to exist side by side, there are also too many situations where indiscriminate open-mindedness has allowed the historical gospel to be diluted to suit modern and postmodern sensibilities. A text such as this one might be regarded as a study in religious bigotry and narrow-mindedness, or it might be read as an authoritative wake-up call for many of us today. Well, as we close, a couple of implications here, and there's many that we could draw from this text. Let me leave you just with three. First of all, remember this. Adding something to the gospel from culture, tradition, intuition, or experience is always a threat. We must maintain our vigilance, beloved. There is always that desire to add something to what is not there in God's word. Secondly, false teaching, the effort of adding to and then asserting that addition as truth, false teaching must be refuted decisively, first and foremost, for the well-being of believers. This is an act of love. Now, in this particular context, Paul is not concerned about the well-being of the false teachers. You could look elsewhere for some comments he makes about concern for them, but this is not the place for that. His concern is focused solely on the true believers in the Cretan churches. He's concerned for their well-being, and we must be as well. Thirdly, let's remember there is no hope apart from the gospel of grace. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how fervent you are in your traditions. It doesn't matter what sacrifices you make. You can go and live on top of a pole for months at a time saying that you're close with God and you can be in the same worthless state as the drug addict on the street. Remember, there is no hope apart from the gospel. And as we close, let's go back to this text in Titus. Read it one more time. Because this is what it's all about. And this is the hill we must die on. Titus 3, 3-7. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration 
and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this beautiful gospel. We're thankful for the hope that it brings because were it not for this grace, we would be in the same category as the worthless, disobedient, deceitful, false teachers. We're thankful that as those who today stand in Christ, we're thankful that you have put us there. We acknowledge it was not our deeds, it was not our efforts, but purely your grace. Father, we pray that you would give us an ever-increasing love for this wonderful gospel, a deepening understanding of it, and a, a growing courage to defend it and to refute those who in any way would threaten it. We ask these things for your glorious sake and because Jesus Christ is indeed worthy. Amen.